Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Hey everyone, welcome back. I am Kevin Cruz. Welcome to the LeadX Leadership Show, where we're helping you to become the boss everyone's fighting to work for. Today on the show, I talked to one of the few people who worked for both Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. Among many other things, she tells me that Steve Jobs is mischaracterized and she thinks he was a good leader. You'll hear that I'm not exactly convinced that Jobs couldn't have been better. But first, would you like to get an extra hour of free time in your day? I personally teach the secrets to extreme productivity in the LeadX Academy. On-demand video lessons that you can watch on your smartphone or iPad or on your computer at work. Visit leadx.org and check out a free trial of the LeadX Academy. Our quote of the week, being the richest man in the cemetery doesn't matter to me. Going to bed at night saying we've done something wonderful, that's what matters to me. Steve Jobs. Our guest today is Managing Director at Ellipsis, an investor relations firm. Her new novel is called Sophia of Silicon Valley. The story follows Sophia as she's fired from an investment bank, rises through the ranks of a top Silicon Valley law firm, and eventually becomes an investor relations guru, first to an eccentric, passionate CEO who wears jeans and black t-shirts, and who is fired from his own computer company, Later, Sophia works for a younger genius founder who wants to build electric cars and rocket ships. If that sounds really familiar, it should. The author worked under Steve Jobs at Pixar and Elon Musk at Tesla. Our guest is Anna Yen. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you. I think I've done, uh, this is episode maybe 250, and you're my first novelist. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's funny being, it sounds funny to me being called a novelist. <laughs> I guess the first book is, uh, it's still fresh for you. I'm sure by your second, it'll be like, of course I'm a novelist. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, congratulations. I really enjoyed it. And of course, uh, the LeadX Leadership Show is primarily about leadership. And I think that while I've got a lot of respect for all the other authors we've had on, you know, there's more than one way to learn about business and leadership. And you've written what I found to be a very interesting, educational, and of course, funny book that I encourage, you know, everyone to read. And we're going to talk more about it in a minute. But I always start with a similar first question for our guests. And okay. with all the experience you've had in the tech industry, what advice would you give to a young professional who wants to stand out and get ahead in her career? Sure. The people that stand out the most to me are the ones that show true work ethic. And what I mean by that is really coming to the table with solutions rather than problems. That That's a big one. Thinking outside the box is, is really, really important. Being creative so that they're not sort of just taking a template approach, but some real thought goes into what the problem is and showing an understanding of the problem and also the people we're trying to serve or the audience or the customers, whatever it be. And I'd say the third thing is really just showing proactive being someone who's proactive, mm. really being able to see ahead and think through any problems that we may face and so that they can be prepared for them if they happen. 
That's great. And, and again, and I mentioned in your bio, but I'll, I'll mention again, your new book is Sophia of Silicon Valley. And most reviewers are noting uh, that it's very autobiographical. In fact, Business Insider wrote, the book is a lightly fictionalized retelling of working under Steve Jobs at Pixar and Elon Musk at Tesla. So I have to ask, uh, you know, how much of it is true? What percent really happened? What percent is sort of exaggerated? Right. So as I mentioned, sort of my, my background was not as a writer, right? And um, my, my agent introduced me to this term called Roman Clay, which is defined technically as autobiography that's loosely fictionalized. And, and, and that's sort of what I would call perfectly my book. I can't say what percentage of it is is real. I would say the mass majority of it. It's just that my career has been spanned over 20 plus years. And to get all the lessons that I wanted to teach my readers, I needed to compress it into 300 pages. <laughs> so in that regard, the timeline is not real. Um, and certain situations have to be attributed, you, you know, you really just have to cut down the number of characters and right. that, that you come across in your life, things like that. I was just going to ask, I have to know, did anyone actually suggest you get a voice coach? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to take nearly a year worth of lessons to train my voice. I mean, I, I don't bother with it anymore because, you know, I don't feel like I have to hide my voice anymore. But sometimes it does come out just automatically if I'm meeting people I don't know. You have, again, in the book, it's amusing. But I imagine that you must have been startled in your real life when a boss sort of sprung like, hey, who's this person? This is a, your voice coach. <laughs> you know, interestingly, I wasn't because what you may also have remembered from the book is my mother <laughs> is incredibly direct. <laughs> I mean, I came home one summer from college and she had signed me up for um, Nutrisystem. Thanks, mom. Right. I just, you know, whatever. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> that's funny. So we don't filter much in my family. I, I was going to say the the way you were raised, I guess you, you are direct and outspoken, but also means you can you can take it as well. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think one of the things that I hope readers will take from the book that I really didn't want to spoon feed is some of the things that I resisted so hard about being Asian and being from an immigrant Asian family. You know, things like being direct or unfiltered, incredibly loud and opinionated, things that were happening in my family that drove me nuts that I attributed to being Chinese that drove me nuts. Uh, were actually the things that made me successful. So it was just ironic in that regard, you know? It is ironic. It is ironic. Now, I, I doing my homework before this interview, I came across something where you said that part of the motivation for writing this book was that you said Steve Jobs had passed away and a lot of things were being written and or produced about him that I didn't find to be accurate or fair at all. I wanted to show the world my perspective as someone who used to work closely with him, that he was an incredible mentor and role model if you knew how to listen, observe and absorb. And I was actually quite startled to hear this because you're right. He's portrayed sort of a certain way in most of the movies and, and, and books. So 
tell me more about, you know, your view of jobs as a, as a positive leader. Sure. Part of you know, going back to my mom, right. sort of, there's no doubt you have to be really thick skinned to work for people like Steve or Elon Musk. And if you can just sort of look past that in a way, you, you start to un- really try to understand or develop an understanding and, and empathy for these people. And I think I was able to do that right from the start and which allowed me to sort of get past any fear or intimidation and watch and learn because he's not a teacher. He's not a, a great mentor either for that matter. Cause he, he doesn't proactively sort of explain things to you. So, so as a leader, he was incredible in my view because what he had was vision and the ability to evangelize it in a way that people wanted to get behind, you know, almost like the Pied Piper, right? right. And he could do that because he did a tremendous amount of work and effort on, made a huge effort on understanding his audience or his target and really what they wanted, what they needed, what would resonate with them. Because I think for people wanting to start companies, what they try to do is they try to develop things that they would use, but often they really don't think about whether the mass, you know, the masses would use that or buy it for that matter. So that was one thing. I think also as a leader, I really admired how he had such confidence. We would go see investors and they always loved to tell him how to run his business. Right. right? And I think that's true for any investor, you know, compared to talking to a CEO, but Steve would ignore them completely. He didn't, he, he didn't, he wasn't affected by them at all. And, and he had the confidence to be able to do that, but he also knew what he did not know. You understand? So, so in areas that he wasn't interested in or confident in, he hired the best people to do it. Yeah. And I think very few leaders will do that. Yeah. So let me ask a follow up on that because you know obviously my work and the company work we focus on on leadership and if you look at the the research one thing that triggers feelings of engagement at work et cetera is when your boss does help you to grow and develop or is is a coach or a mentor and you're saying Steve was was not that I've got an executive coach friend who tells me he talks about executive behaviors that are low frequency, but high impact. And he calls them the screamers. So he says, even if you only scream, you know, once a month, once a quarter, once a year, it's a very low frequency. But if you're a screamer, it really affects people. And, you know, they kind of clam up or can have a negative impact. And you said you had to have some thick skin with Steve. So it's sounding like you're saying like the vision stuff was so compelling it compensated for him not being the mentor or more sensitive to people's feelings and, and that type of thing. Am I hearing that right? In a way, it wasn't about compensation. It was just this desire to want to achieve and build what he sort of had outlined. So it was about us. the work. It was about doing the cool work. That's right. And believing that you had this mission and you were going to make an impact on the world. So, 
but it was also incredibly exciting and really what what made him a mentor in in a completely unintentional way was he would he threw you out there and let you figure it out and that's truly an amazing way to learn but you also have to be really thoughtful and some of the things that we talked about in your first question, right? You have to be just really proactive and you have to work incredibly long and hard to achieve what you don't know. So, and he did that by hiring people that he thought were really smart. They may not have had any experience doing, I mean, I didn't have any investor relations experience when I started, but you know, there was something there that allowed him to trust me. Yeah. And the the last Steve Jobs follow up is okay. you know I'm curious if you think that would Steve have been even more successful would Apple have been more successful earlier if he had all that vision and everything you're talking about but he had also smoothed off some of those rough edges? No, I don't think so because you know I think there was a certain amount of roughness and that the unfiltered comments that came out that uh, really made an impact on how the effect he had on explaining his vision. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And it was authentic. I mean, you knew what you were dealing with. It was authentic. That's right. If he soft shoed, I think it would have been very, very different. Yeah. That makes sense. Now you're, you're, For example, he would have been incredibly passionate about color, right? And that's why the Apple products are so beautiful, right? Is the design and what they look like. But if he hadn't stuck to his guns and he may have fired three, four, five designers, right? In the effort to find the perfect color. Right. But... In the end, we've all bought into it, right? And it's not to say that one color is going to make the difference, but it surely makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Now, you're probably one of the few people that uh, have worked with both Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. We've been talking about uh, Jobs. Uh, You know, when did you meet Musk for the first time? What are your memories from the first time you met Elon Musk? I met Elon in an interview, I was interviewing at Tesla. They, I can't come pretty late in the game. They, uh, the, I, I sort of didn't fit the traditional sort of pedigree that the CFO had been looking for specifically, but no one else had made it past Elon. So I don't know. I had an interview with him. He asked me, it was very brief. He asked me a couple of questions and one that I specifically remember, which is you've never done anything with cars before. Mm-hmm. Um, so why should I hire you? And you know, that was a great question, but I passed. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> so what was your great answer? Because clearly uh, you made it past the Elon test. <laughs> right. I just explained to him that what he was doing with Tesla was incredibly hard and something that would require a lot of convincing with Wall Street. And when it was not dissimilar to what Steve was trying to do in Steve and John Laster and Ed Catmull um, and Lawrence Levy, 
back at Pixar when they were trying to convince Wall Street they could displace the 800-pound gorilla that was Disney. So, you know, America had not had a new car manufacturer in you know, decades. Right. And so and there was no reason Elon had was going you should have been able to do it. But um so it would have been the similar type of challenge. Given how uh, your reputation for being blunt, I'm surprised you didn't say to Elon, uh, well, well, that's two of us that have no experience in cars. <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't that uh, creative. <laughs> and, and, Not that quick. <laughs> and it's amazing, though, uh, you know, we're doing this, uh, we're having this chat in July of 2018, and this Tesla versus the analysts and Wall Street is just continuing on. I mean, it's really a tough situation uh, that, that they're in. It is. But ultimately, you know, people ask me a lot whether Tesla is going to make it. And I, I believe they will. I think they've got the right team and the right mission. And, you know, the core values of the company remain intact. You know, sometimes it's just not pretty getting there. But right. I, I believe I believe in him specifically. Now, throughout the book, Sophia of Silicon Valley, uh, you sort of use use your story to communicate some of these little lessons or things that you've found helpful in your life. Uh, tell me about one or two of them. Sure. Well, like the six minutes at a time is a big one for me. And I've just found it really useful, whether I'm dealing with cancer or, you know, whether I've just got this overwhelming schedule at work um, with a list of thousands of things to do, it's easy to start spinning your wheels. So when I find that I do that, or when I start to work myself up or get worried or afraid, I just tell myself six minutes, what do I have to do in the next six minutes? And I find that it is incredibly effective. So that's one of them. And tell our listeners, where did that come from? Why six and not Five or seven. Oh, it came from working at a law firm. We, we built in six minute increment. My attorney listeners will will have guessed that, but I wanted to make sure. <laughs> yeah, that came from the law firm. Um, so it's strange that you would use that as a lesson, but I, I certainly found it helpful. And the other thing I would say is that I don't overanalyze, and so that's why six minute and minutes at a time helps because I think everyone particularly it seems to be getting worse in terms of generational right I think people are becoming incredibly analytical and almost paralyzed um, I see that a lot in the workplace for the younger people that work with me and it's almost like analysis paralysis that's as far as relationships or work so the six minute thing helps too and I always find deck feathers to be another helpful one. You know, it's easy to be affected by what other people say or do, but I always sort of say to myself duck feathers just to let it roll off my back because they could just be having a bad day. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Just let it roll off your back. I like that a lot. Exactly. Exactly. The the third thing I would say specifically for your audience and, and for the startup audience is, is to know your, your customer. We talked about that a little bit earlier, but, and that doesn't mean just, are they male or female? What's their income? You know, things that are basic. But what I learned from Steve is, you know, you want to know 
what their purchasing power is. What you want to come in a dollar below the the amount that the, they have to go ask their spouse for approval. Because <laughs> <laughs> then it's easier. Right, right. And I think people forget that. Yeah. They want to create products that help all these features and functions. They've done research and and maybe they're trying to reach, you know, small distributors or, you know, bars, for example. And these guys want everything. But then if you really get down to it, you spend all this time trying to build that for them, but they're only going to pay for two or three of those features. So that was just a complete waste of your time. Yeah. So that's just Customers will wish you to death. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Now, by day, you run Ellipsis, an investor relations company. And I also you know, read in an interview where you said it's your day job is actually not that different than writing because it's about you do storytelling for investors. You work with your clients to help them to tell their story to investors. And that's right. You know, I um, lead X is a startup. I'm a serial entrepreneur, so I'm only talking to my friends and family, like doing seed round stuff. But what advice would you give to a startup entrepreneur as they, as I, you know, pitch the company and try to frame lead X in the best possible light? That's a really good question. I think um, what I do when I'm talking to public, you know, institutional investors, and, and it's not any different for you. I mean, I've raised money before as well. You really have to understand what their hot buttons are, right? So what they want to know is, are you going to make the money, right? And is this going to be a long-term sustainable business, right? And are you going to make the money touches upon whether this is something that is in an industry or in a field that really does have demand? Are you hitting a pain point? And I think if you can explain to an investor that you that you're gonna solve this real pain, they're gonna they'll they'll write a check. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to elaborate or support that Anna by just saying there's a saying someone told me once about ideally in business, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, consultant, whatever, they said you want to be you want to be selling Advil, not vitamins. You know, everyone should take vitamins, but not everybody buys or takes vitamins. But if you've got a headache, if you've got pain, you're going to take an Advil. And so I really like the way you said, right. is there a pain point? Yes. And I think that's a, that's the big one. And then I find that as the, as the CEO of a company, it's easy for for them to buy, to be passionate about what they're doing and want to talk about that. But at the end of the day, an investor only cares about that if they understand how that affects the bottom line. So you can say, for example, I'm going to build this world-class media company, which they'd say, okay, that's great. But then when you get into the details, they want to know every detail has to translate into dollars. And I think that's, important. Great advice. So Anna, tell our listeners, how can they find out more about you, your company, and of course your new book? So ellipsisir.com is is our company. That's our URL. And then as for the book, you can go to annayen.net or walk into a bookstore. (laughs) What a concept, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But thank you so much for having me. I, I, it, I really enjoyed it and it's been a pleasure. 
Anna, we're going to make sure those links go into the show notes and in the articles and social media and everything so people can find your book. It's a really fun, enjoyable read. And thank you for coming on to the LeadX show. Thank you so much. Friends, if you like this episode of the LeadX Leadership Podcast, please take just a minute and leave a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. It's the number one way we will attract new leaders. And you know, I'm on a mission over the next 10 years to spark 100 million new leaders. And if you're looking to teach your managers how to become great leaders, how to increase their employee engagement scores, and how they can achieve extreme productivity, check out the LeadX Academy at leadx.org or just send me an email if you have 10 or more managers and we'll talk about doing a free pilot in your company. Info at leadx.org is the email address and I'll personally respond. Remember, leadership is influence. You're always leading. How will you lead today? <laughs>